Episode 10, The Desert Fox. Tanks course along the pale dunes, treads leaving trails stretching back to the horizon. Tomorrow the wind will blow and the tracks will vanish. In time, the desert will swallow them all. Tanks, guns, men, wars. In time, what will happen here will become stories. Legends for people to share. The heat and the hardship, the death and the suffering. Even the reasons these battles were fought out here on the shifting sands will fade, will become memory, then history. But for right now, the engines are loud, the heat sweltering, and the cannon belch fire and smoke. Tanks charge like ancient knights, then circle each other in an intricate dance. Shouts of command, shouts of horror, shouts of pain form a cacophony, only drowned out by the other sounds of war. The sand hisses under tracks. 88s hammer away. Machine guns chatter. A shell crashes into the thin side armor of a tank. Steel twists, shatters, blackens. The crew bail out of its terror. Across the battlefield, another wreck sits, oily smoke pouring from its engines. Above, dive bombers come in for pass after pass as clouds of flak bloom in the sky. Sand erupts as shells carve great gouges in the dunes. But tomorrow, all will be quiet. The whirlwind of desert wall will have blown the battle elsewhere, and the sand will start to cover all that remains. Welcome to the finest half hour, read by Richard Cutland, written by Jim Jager, and brought to you with the generous support of Wargaming. Today we're going to begin talking about the most romanticised part of the Second World War, the part that Rommel called a war without hate. A contest whose entirety occurred across a strip of North Africa rarely more than 40 miles wide, yet looms large in our collective imagination. Why? Perhaps it's because this is the region that made larger-than-life figures such as George S. Patton, Bernard Montgomery and Erwin Rommel household names. Perhaps it's because it's the one part of the war where civilian casualties were light. That's not to say there weren't any. The American army had a whole table of how much you had to pay a family if you ran over their goat, their dog or their child. But it took place in a scarcely populated region with none of the terror bombing, genocide or slaughter of civilians that occurred in Europe or Asia. Or perhaps it's because it's the first place that British and American troops fought together against the Nazis. Whatever the cause, the second phase of the war in North Africa begins now. Libyan Desert, February 1941. A small scout plane bounces along the runway. A man in a General Leutnant coat and cap leans out. He shouts to the base commander in German. He's personally been scouting. He's seen it for himself. The British are weak in Benghazi. They must launch a bombing raid, now. The base commander turns to the telephone and makes a call. He's shaking his head. He regrets to inform the newly arrived head of the Africa Corps that they can't attack Benghazi. The man looks astonished. He demands to know why. The base commander just shrugs and says that some of the Italian officers own property there and don't want it damaged. Some have called the African campaign a sidelight, paling in importance to the events happening in the Soviet Union and Asia. But, along with the campaign in Greece, it did, without a doubt, seal the fate of one nation, Italy. 
Mussolini's gamble had failed. His armies lay shattered. His nation, rather than returning to the glory of Rome, had lost all claim to being a major power. After the Greek debacle and the fiasco in North Africa, Italy was reduced to little more than a German client state. Hitler still paid lip service to Mussolini, acting in public as if they were equals, but few were under any illusion about where the real power lay. This was cemented by the arrival of Rommel in North Africa. Hitler had given him two divisions and sent him to contain the situation in Libya. Technically, he was subordinate to the Italian commander in the region, but even early on when his order to bomb Benghazi was countermanded, he just called up his good friend Hitler and had him override the command. It soon became clear that in North Africa it was Rommel calling the shots. It could hardly be otherwise. Not only had his service as commander of Hitler's bodyguard earned him a special place in the Führer's heart, but Rommel's very nature demanded it. He was swift and decisive. When he saw an opportunity he wouldn't wait for confirmation. He would just take it, and by doing so, force everyone else to follow along. This was particularly true in North Africa. When he first arrived, he saw the situation as grim. The Italian forces were in tatters. One strong push might knock them out, and most of his armour had yet to arrive. He needed six to eight weeks without an attack, and he got it through bluffing. One of his first acts was to have a factory in Tunisia start turning out fake tanks. Called the Cardboard Division, they'd slap cardboard armour on Volkswagens, mount half a telephone pole on top for the gun, and then drive them around with a few real tanks to kick up enough dust that British aerial reconnaissance couldn't tell the difference. Even that might not have worked, though, if the British weren't at their limit. Their supply lines were stretched to breaking point. Their veteran troops had been diverted to Greece. They didn't have a lot of offensive capability left. And so, the push that might have ended the war in Africa before Rommel even got into the fight never came. But while he waited for his troops to arrive and the Africa Corps to assemble, Rommel wasn't idle. He personally scouted enemy positions, and in doing so he realised something, something that shocked him about the situation he'd stumbled into. All along the front, the British positions were weak. He flew back to Germany, asking for two more corps with which to push all the way to the Suez Canal. He was denied and told firmly to hold his position, but, never one to squander an opportunity, instead Rommel attacked. He was right, the British were weak and he caught them totally by surprise. In an ironic twist of fate, Bletchley Park intercepted and decrypted Rommel's order to stay put. They passed this information along to Wivel, the British commander in North Africa, who took it to heart and was operating off the assumption that no attack by the new German forces in the region was imminent. But Rommel, acting against orders, blew through the British lines. Surprised, weakened by the transfer of troops to Greece and their replacements by green recruits, the British were forced back everywhere. Rommel took Ajadabia, then Benghazi. German High Command reluctantly issues a retroactive order for him to attack and take Benghazi, but to go no further. He didn't listen. The next day he overran the garrison at Mushili, where, in return for a small kindness, a British prisoner of war gave Rommel the iconic goggles he would wear for the rest of his life. But by this point the desert was beginning to take its toll. The sands ate away at his tanks, 
and his subordinates begged for time to clean them and do vital repairs. But Rommel was getting reports of a British fleet massing at a nearby port. Remembering Dunkirk, he assumed the British were preparing for a massive withdrawal by sea. He wasn't going to let them get away. So he ordered the Africa Corps on, on to Tobruk. Outskirts of Tobruk, Easter weekend 1941. Shells whine overhead, men scream and fall. A soldier stands for a moment to fire his rifle. He begins to line up his sights. Then his shoulder is thrown back. He spins like a top and collapses. He's been hit. A man with a white sash around his arm, emblazoned with a red cross, leaps forward. Machine gun fire from a Panzer II pings off the rocks behind him. He dives into the trench. An explosion roars just meters away. He has no time to think about it. Just keep your head down and attend to the man in front of you. The man would live. He was conscious, dazed, but conscious. The bullet struck right below his collarbone. Blood oozed slowly from the wound. The medic pulls the remnants of the bullet from the man's flesh. The man didn't scream. His hand just clenches around the medic's arm until the knuckles are white. Machine guns chatter around them. The medic began to bandage the wound. Somewhere a cheer starts. Things are quieter, but he has no time to check what is going on. He has one mission, one thing to focus on right now. He puts his arm under the good shoulder of the man he's been tending. As he begins to lift, the man stares out at the battlefield behind them. In little more than a whisper, he says, the Germans are retreating. In three weeks of lightning war, Rommel retook all the territory the Italians had lost to the British. He pushed them right back to the Egyptian border. But there he made an error. He sent his weary and depleted forces to stop the British from escaping from Tobruk. But the British were not withdrawing from Tobruk. They were reinforcing it. This left Rommel with a dilemma. The doctrine of Blitzkrieg was to win by cutting off your enemies, not outfighting them. The Maginot Line did not have to be conquered to fall. Whole French armies had been forced into surrender without ever being beaten in some climactic battle. A siege went against all of Rommel's strengths, against all of the Wehrmacht's strengths, and yet he understood the importance of Tobruk. Tobruk was a major port, holding it would shorten his supply lines by 800 miles. If he could take it, it would give him the operational base he needed to invade Egypt. Conversely, so long as the British held it, they would have a base in his rear, one that couldn't be strangled or cut off as long as they still controlled the sea. Worse still, Tobruk stood on the only major road between Tripoli and Cairo. If he was to invade Egypt, there was no other path, no other route that his supplies could go through. It was the only paved road in all of North Africa large enough to support the type of supply train he'd need. So he made the fateful decision he put Tobruk under siege. But first he tried to take it by force. He rushed in, hoping to catch the British forces disorganised and not yet prepared for the Africa Corps arrival. He couldn't have been more wrong. Massive waves of artillery rained down upon his troops and those few who made it to the defensive line were met by well-dug-in Australians. The attack was a failure. Losses were heavy. But Rommel was not one to give up, so he ordered another attack. 
This time his armor was surprised by a contingent of thick-skinned Matildas and well-concealed anti-tank guns. Shells rained down on them from all sides. Few escaped. Rommel ordered yet another attack, but his officers refused. The decision to dig in was made. 100 miles east of Tobruk, middle of June 1941, Operation Battleaxe. 88s roar all around them. The husks of tanks smolder in the desert heat. There are shouts in German from the pass above them. This is it. This is Hellfire Pass. The radio crackles. There's too much traffic, too much chaos. It's confusion all around. Then a man shouting cuts through the din. It's their commander, Major Miles. He says something. His first words are lost in the crackle of static. Then, it comes through clearly, a final message before his radio cuts off. They are tearing my tanks apart. Over the course of May, the stalemate around Tobruk evolved little. The Germans ground their way into a small salient. The British attacked from Egypt and pushed the Axis forces from some of the positions to the east of Tobruk. Then the Germans had counterattacked and captured those positions right back. But as all this was happening, the British had intercepted messages from German high command, ordering Rommel to hold his position and, more importantly, admitting openly that the Africa Corps simply did not have the strength to take Tobruk. Churchill pushed Wavell for an attack. Rommel was weak. Now was the time to drive him back to Tripoli. But Wavell was a man of immense caution. He refused to act until he could build up his own forces and strike with overwhelming strength. Over the course of May, he received more men and, more importantly, nearly 250 more tanks. With a little bit of time for refit and training, that meant he was ready to attack by the middle of June. He enjoyed a two-to-one advantage in tanks and, for perhaps the first time since the Luftwaffe started patrolling North Africa, he had been given enough RAF cover to meet them on nearly equal terms in the air. The Germans faced longer supply lines and were extremely low on fuel. Victory seemed certain. All they would have to do was to carve through the valley that held the main road, Halfire Pass. Early on the 15th, the attack began. Artillery was supposed to soften up enemy positions along the ridgeline guarding Halfire Pass. But the heavy guns got bogged down in the desert sand. For a quarter of an hour, the troops waited. Then, they started hearing the reports of weapons being fired in nearby engagements. The element of surprise had been lost. One of the local commanders ordered his tanks to attack. All along the ridge, they charged into the teeth of the German 88s, which could pierce the thickest British armour at a range of six miles. Only one of the attacking tanks escaped being reduced to a burning ruin. The infantry also tried to charge the hill overlooking Halfire but a German armoured car detachment came screaming in, mowing down the armourless infantry. Below, another contingent of tanks was mauled in a minefield they thought had been cleared. The British dubbed Halfire, Hellfire Pass. The attack had stalled. Elsewhere, though, to the north and west, the British were meeting with more success. Their armour, acting over open ground, pushed back the Germans and their infantry took over a nearby fort held by the Italians. But even in the west, a brigade of tanks charged with taking the Hafid ridgeline 
have been lured into a trap, losing half their vehicles and, worse still, leaving those that had only been damaged to be recovered and used by the Germans. Still, unbeknownst to the British, the Axis troops and Halfire Pass were low on ammunition. Another strong push might yet break through. The next day, the 16th, the British attacked again. Halfire was surrounded, but still the British couldn't take the pass. Then Rommel counterattacked. He had held one of his panzer divisions in reserve. Now he unleashed them. He'd had little success at Fort Capuzzo, the fort to the northwest of Hellfire Pass that the British had captured the previous day. Surprised by artillery the British had brought up overnight, his panzers were turned back with devastating losses. But everywhere else he was successful. He exploited the weakness of the slow Matilda twos, keeping his panzers out of range of their guns, whilst picking off the trucks that were bringing them their artillery and anti-tank support. His panzers then circled around to outmanoeuvre the now unsupported British armour. By the end of the day, the British tank brigades were in shambles. The next day, Rommel pressed the attack, relieving the forces at Halfire and chasing the British back into Egypt. The 7th Armoured Division, which Wavell had so assiduously reinforced, was left with only 21 serviceable tanks. Even after repairs, the abortive attack cost the British almost half of their armour in Egypt. Hitler was ecstatic. He promoted Rommel on the spot. He had proven he could not only attack but beat the British on defence too. And with the promotion he became at last not just de facto commander of Axis forces in North Africa, but finally their official commander as well. Meanwhile, that night, Wavell sent a message to Churchill. It simply read, I regret to report the failure of battle axe. Churchill was furious. He expected an easy victory. He had expended so many resources to give Wavell the equipment he needed. He had ordered air support taken from other sectors for this. Now it was all gone, lost in the desert or fallen into German hands. That was it. Wavell had to go. He'd find someone else who could do the job. Libyan-Egyptian border, November 1941, Operation Crusader. He hunkers down in his foxhole, barely nine inches deep. Artillery shells fly overhead, almost horizontal now. German tanks are nearly on top of them. He scrabbles to make his hole just a little deeper, but there was nothing to dig into, nothing but hard limestone beneath. He readies his rifle and looks up. There's their commander, Jock Campbell in his armoured car, blue pennant waving. He's standing, exposed, to better see their foe. Twice he's personally run reconnaissance, dashing in in his command vehicle and just barely making it out again. Once, as they were going over rough terrain and his car began to lag behind the tanks, he'd seen the man leap from his command car to the back of a Matilda so he could ride it into battle and direct the engagement because the tank group had lost their leader. Now his car came up to them, screeching to a halt. Campbell vaulted out. A thick bandage stretched over a fresh wound. Nowhere in his bearing was the pain visible, except perhaps in the lines around his eyes. He strolled over to the artillery roaring behind them and, seeing that one of the crews was short-handed, just began manning the gun. Over the shellfire he could be heard to shout, 
There they come. Let them have it. Here was a man worth fighting for. Unfortunately, Jock Campbell merely commanded the forces at Sidi Rezeg, just south of Tobruk. The man who was given overall command of the British troops in North Africa was a man of a very different sort. At this point, it's worth taking a moment to note that while England was indubitably waging a heroic and noble war against the greatest threat to democracy, and perhaps, without hyperbole, the greatest evil humankind has ever known, they also possessed the largest colonial empire in the world. There were people all over the globe who thought of them as oppressors and saw Britain's misfortune as their gain. Throughout the war, a large number of British soldiers were siphoned off from the main conflict to serve as garrison troops, ensuring that those wanting to leave the empire couldn't. This also meant that, early in the war, much of Britain's military leadership was made up of officers more used to thinking of the British Army as a colonial police force than a war fighting machine. And the man tipped to lead the fight in North Africa was one such old soldier. His name was Sir Claude Auchinlick. He was the colonial commander-in-chief of India, and a man who had recently garnered attention for swiftly crushing a pro-Axis uprising in Iraq. One of his first actions was to put out an order that his officers no longer refer to the enemy as Rommel, or the Germans in North Africa as Rommel's troops, because he feared that Rommel had become a legend, a bogeyman whose very name was destroying morale. Churchill, as always, wanted him to press the attack, but, after the disaster of Battle Axe, he told the Prime Minister that they'd need time to rebuild. The summer was spent preparing for the next big push. Rommel, meanwhile, was once again stretched to his limits. His forces desperately needed reinforcements and equipment, and, when his doctor saw him, he immediately told him that he had jaundice and needed rest. Rommel promptly ignored this advice and set about rebuilding the Axis forces in North Africa. He flew to the Wolf's Lair, Hitler's bunker headquarters in Poland, to petition the High Command for more troops. But there, on the table, even as he explained his grand plans to push to the Suez, was a map of Russia. The Third Reich's attention had moved east. By November, he had received less than half of the troops he'd requested, and planes flying out of Malta had sunk a number of ships that were supposed to be bringing him supplies. He flew out to Rome, demanding that more ships be sent, and whilst there, was told of an intelligence report stating that the British were planning an attack. He dismissed this as implausible, not knowing how much faster the Empire had been to resupply and refit its force in North Africa. The following day, as he flew back to his command, his plane was forced to make an emergency landing in Greece for repairs. There, he got a second piece of curious news. Last night, the British had tried to assassinate him. An entire commando troop had been sent to attack his headquarters at Beda Latoria. He was furious. Not about the assassination attempt, but because they thought he'd be in Beda Latoria. He hadn't used his headquarters in months. Did they really think he'd be leading that far from the front? When he finally landed back in Africa, reports started flooding in that the British were on the move. He refused to believe it. It was a reconnaissance in force or some probing action. Then one of his aides switched the radio to the BBC. 
and he heard them announce that Orkenlik had started a general offensive in the Western Desert with the aim of destroying the German-Italian forces in Africa. Okay, he was convinced. For once Rommel was slow to act, but the British failed to take advantage of his lethargy. They assaulted heavily defended positions head-on, slowing them down, and they spread out their tanks, eliminating their massive advantage in armour. But he was caught off guard by forces from Tobruk. The King's Own, the Queen's Own, and the Black Watch attempted a breakout. They formed a trident. Their goal was to meet up with the 7th Armoured Division, which was supposed to be charging their way. But unbeknownst to them, the 7th had already been stopped by Rommel. The breakout had to fall back to Tobruk. Rommel's forces met hard fighting by New Zealanders and Indians near Fort Capuzzo and South Africans at Sidi Rizek, where Jock Campbell earned his Victoria Cross. Even with his victories, though, Rommel's numbers were starting to thin. He needed to do something or be ground down. He decided on a bold gamble. He pulled men from the forces laying siege to Tobruk and made a dash for the wire, a headlong charge meant to sweep past the British forces to destroy their support in the rear. This threat, he hoped, would force the British to call off the attack. At first it all goes well, his advance is rapid, but then things start to fall apart. A group of New Zealanders break through his recently thin lines around Tobruk and link up with the main British forces in his rear. His attack starts to slow, his tanks are running on fumes. The Italian High Command informs him that they won't be able to increase supply until the end of the month. At last, he gives the order, retreat. Rommel's forces pull back, not only from the failed assault on the enemy's back line, but from Tobruk itself. They'll rally at El Aguila and figure out their next move. At last, after 242 days, the siege of Tobruk is at an end. But Rommel wasn't done, something Orkenlik didn't realise. Orkenlik was a colonial commander and treated the Germans like a poorly organised colonial uprising, like a force that would come apart at the first sign of defeat. But they had retreated in good order. They still had their morale and still respected their commander. At the beginning of January, they attacked and pushed the disorganised and overstretched British forces back 300 miles to Gazala, just west of Tobruk. And, for seven weeks, there they'd sit, until, suddenly, the balance of power in North Africa would shift once again. So, join us next week for the Battle of Gazala and El Alamein. <laughs>